Bibles with you. It's going to be in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. My sermon text is verses 31 to the end of the chapter to verse 34, but I want to read from verse 25 to the end of the chapter to verse 34. So we're going to read from Matthew 6, verse 25 to the end of the chapter to Matthew 6, verse 34. Matthew chapter 6, starting in verse 25, please hear this public reading of God's word. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap, nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive, and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? Or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Let's pray together briefly. Dear Heavenly Father, it is a privilege to come and gather with your people as always, what a privilege it is to sing uh, with your people, just stirring, even just singing th- this afternoon, some of these songs, just stirred afresh, singing with your people. So thank you for this opportunity, and we're thankful for your word. We're thankful for the Sermon on the Mount that we have in, in Matthew 5 to 7. It's just powerful stuff. Thankful for this passage on anxiety that Jesus deals with so powerfully. I pray that we would see that the sin of anxiety is a significant sin in our lives. It is not a trivial sin, not a sin to mess around with. This is a sin that we need to put to death uh, by the Spirit. So I I pray you'd help us to see the seriousness of this sin, convict us of this sin in our lives. And Father, I pray that uh, we would uh, leave here today better equipped to fight against this sin. And I pray that we really would seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. Help us to do that. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to have four points for my sermon today. I'm just going to sort of jump into point number one. Point number one of the sermon is the significant sin of anxiety, the significant sin of anxiety. I just want to take this passage that I just read, and you will see that Jesus references anxiety or anxious, the word anxiety or the word anxious, five separate times in a short span of verses. Look at, we'll go through these. Verse 25, he says, therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious. There's the first one about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. And then your second reference here, verse 27, and which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? Then verse 28 is the third reference to anxiety or anxious. He says in verse 28, and why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow, they neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Then the fourth reference to anxious or anxiety, verse 31, therefore do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat? Or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? And then the the last one, verse 34, the fifth reference, Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious 
for itself. So five separate times he mentions anxious or anxiety, and three times he explicitly says, do not be anxious. Why such an emphasis on this? Why is Jesus repeating himself? Why is he saying three times explicitly not to be anxious? I think one of the reasons would be because this is a significant sin in the believer's life. It's a significant sin, not a trivial sin. One pastor gave this illustration. He said, you may be driving somewhere and there's a slight curve ahead. You may have one sign in the road warning you about the curve in the road and telling you to slow down and you can maybe slow down a little bit. You take the curve. He said, if there's a more intense curve up ahead, you may have a couple of signs or multiple signs maybe warning you about this intense curve ahead. But he said, if you were in the mountains and there is a hairpin turn in the mountains that is exceedingly dangerous, he said, apparently he had seen one of these. And he said, there's going to be lots of signs warning you about this to hairpin turn ahead. I said, by the time you get near this uh, hairpin turn, there's going to be a, a big sign. So there, he said he saw one, this bright sign, bright, bright colors. It said, warning, dangerous curve ahead. You know, there's a huge drop off, other slow down, dangerous curve ahead. And that's what Jesus is doing here. Do not be anxious. Do not be anxious. Do not be anxious. He's warning us. This is a significant sin in the believer's life. And he's trying to make us aware of that. I think that's at least one of the reasons why he is repeating himself over and over again, that we would be aware that this is a significant sin in our lives. So what I want to do is I want to pause point one for just a few minutes. We'll come back to it in, in just a few minutes. And I want to deal with a, what I'm calling a bonus point here, throw this bonus point in. And I want us to think about how anxiety operates in our life. Think about anxiety as a tree coming out of the ground. This is the sin of anxiety. Is a tree coming out of the ground. They're going to have branches coming off of it. We'll deal with the branches later. But think about anxiety as a tree. Well, below that tree, there's, there's a root system. There's a root structure in place. What is the root structure or what is the root cause of anxiety. What is the root cause of anxiety? Well, Jesus helps us in verse 30. Look at Matthew 6, verse 30. Jesus says, But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive, and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, <clears throat> will he not much more clothe you? Here's the key. O you of little faith. Here, here is the root cause of anxiety. is little faith or lack of faith gives rise to the sin of anxiety. So little faith or lack of faith, that's the root structure, the root system that gives rise to anxiety. So the question now becomes, the very important question would be, what is little faith, or how would you describe lack of faith or little faith? How would you define that? Well, when you have a question like that, you turn to Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones for the answer, and Martin Lloyd-Jones says it like this. He says, little faith or lack of faith can be described as a failure to take scriptural statements at their face value and to believe them utterly. So little faith or lack of faith is a failure to take scriptural statements at their face value. It is a failure to believe them utterly. That's what lack of faith or little faith is. So we are doubting God's word when we give into the sin of anxiety. I mean, just think about it. We're, we're not fully trusting in Romans 8, 28, that God causes all things to work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. When we give into anxiety, we are not believing that. We're not believing that fully. We are, we're doubting God's word. We're not believing Romans 8, 32. He did not spare his own son, but freely gave him up for us all. How will he not along with him graciously give us all things? We are not believing that fully, completely. So that's lack of faith gives rise to the sin of anxiety. So this is how anxiety operates. Little faith gives rise to the sin of anxiety. That's the root cause. So over here, I would say we want to have strong faith. We want to have strong faith to be guarded against the sin of anxiety. We want to have strong faith. So now it becomes the question, how do you define strong faith? What is strong faith? Well, I will, use, I will define it first. I'm going to illustrate it and define it as I illustrate it. If you came to me or if somebody came to me and asked me, Tell me somebody, I mean, outside of maybe biblical people like the Apostle Paul, outside of biblical people, if someone asked me, tell me somebody from church history off the top of your head who had strong faith. And I wouldn't have to hesitate for a second. I would say George Mueller without hesitation. I would say George Mueller is someone who had exceedingly strong faith in church history. Now, I've mentioned this before. George Mueller 
There are people in church history who are far more brilliant than George Mueller. I mean, Charles Spurgeon, more brilliant. They were, they were good friends. Spurgeon greatly admired him, and Spurgeon was way more brilliant than George Mueller, just naturally more gifted. Jonathan Edwards, more brilliant than George Mueller without question. John Calvin, more brilliant than George Mueller. You can go on and on. But you will be hard-pressed to find anybody with more faith than George Mueller uh, in church history outside of Bible times. There's, there's, it's just, I'm, you can try to find, and you can let me know if you find somebody. But George Mueller just had exceedingly strong faith. If you know his story, he, he was thrown in prison He's converted like in his early 20s, went to this Bible study, came back, heard the gospel, changed dramatically, he becomes a man of prayer. Uh, he he found, the, found these orphanages, cared for over 10,000, I mean, just a staggering number of, of orphans he cared for, over 10,000 orphans in his life. He never, never asked a person for money, ever, one time. He simply relied on God to provide the needs of the orphans, and time and time again, God provides. Last minute, God provides for the needs. I mean, just amazing, miraculous answers to prayer. And this, this is his life. You, you can imagine living that way for, you know, 60-plus years, Living that way, trusting God, his faith grew to an exceedingly strong degree. And this is, I've, st- I've told this before at Liliana's memorial service, but uh, he was married to his wife Mary for 39 years. They had an incredible marriage. I'll, I'll, I'll describe some of it in just a minute. Incredible marriage. She gets very sick. When he heard about how serious it was, how serious the sickness was, he said, my heart was nigh near broken. My heart was near broken, he says, upon the seriousness of the news. But how is he going to respond? Is he going to give in to anxiety, sinful anxiety, or is he going to trust God? Well, we're going to see his faith on display. He says this, God is sovereign over life and death. Then listen to this. He says, if it is good for her and for me, she will. She will be restored Again, he says, if it's good, he means good in the Romans 8, 28 sense of the word good. If it is good, truly good. You see his faith. She's going to be restored. I know she will be restored if it's for my good, for my sanctification. I know she will. If not, if it is not for my good, she won't hear him. He says, my heart is at rest. There's no anxiety in George Mueller. I am satisfied with God. And here's the key about strong faith. He said, all this comes from taking God at his word. And this is what he would say time and again. He will say, take God at his word, believe what he says, be satisfied in God. That, that's the idea. That is strong faith. We take God at his word, Romans eight twenty eight. We believe it thoroughly and we are satisfied. We are at rest in God. That's how you're free from anxiety. Well, then God takes his wife. She dies and she goes to heaven. How is he going to respond when, when his wife, they, he loved her so deeply. I mean, I, I can, here's the, the picture that he talks about. They worked together in the, in the orphan house. And he said thousands of times he would see her. I mean, just every day they would see each other. And he said thousands upon, time, thousands upon thousands of times he would see her. And he said every time, every time he saw her, he would say, he, was, he said he was delighted to see her. And he said she was equally delighted to see me. I mean, that's the relationship they had, an incredible relationship. And God takes her. How is he going to respond? Is he going to have anxiety or is he going to have strong faith? Well, he said that every day he said he missed her. And he said every day he, he realized how great her loss was to the orphans. But then he says this, yet without an effort, my inmost soul habitually joys in the joy of that love departed one. Her happiness gives joy to me. And here is his faith on display. He says, my dear daughter and self would not, would not have her back. Were it possible to produce it by the turn of the hand? He, doesn't, he said he would not bring her back if he could. Why not? God himself has done it. We are satisfied with him. This is strong faith. We want to take God at his word, believe what he says, and we're satisfied in God. That is strong faith. So here's an application right here at the beginning of the sermon. The application would be we want to flood our life, flood our life with things that will increase our faith in God. Just flood your life with things that will increase your faith in God. Faith increases when it is fed. Faith is going to increase 
when it is fed. So I would say this, feed your faith on the nature and character of God as revealed in the Bible. Feed your faith on the nature and character of God. I would say, especially if you're younger in the faith, and especially maybe you're going through sunny days, no trials right now, I would say, feed your faith on the nature and character of God. God is good, and he does good. Feed your faith on that, so your faith will grow strong, because when the trial hits, you want to have strong faith. And if you have strong faith, you have fed on the nature and character of God, that he is good, and all that he does, you're not going to give in to this anxiety. You will be armed against the sin of anxiety. Tim Challies talked about this. We lost his son, son, Nick, over two years ago now. He talked about growing up in a wonderful Christian home, getting catechized. And he just said he knew, he trusted God. He, he was just absolutely convinced of the trustworthiness of God. He said, so when God took his son, he just knew God is good in this. So we want to feed our faith. Just flood your life with things that will increase your faith. Okay, back to point number one, the significant sin of anxiety. We're going to unpause point one, the significant sin of anxiety. Remember how it, how it starts. The root system is lack of faith. Little faith gives rise to the sin of anxiety. Now you think about these branches coming off the tree of anxiety. These branches are the effects of anxiety. And this is, this is one of the reasons why this is such a significant sin, is that anxiety will make you, what I would say, a sitting duck to so many other sins. It's just going to make you so vulnerable to other sins. The sin of anxiety is going to make you a sitting duck to so many other sins. And you can you just picture the scene where you're anxious about something. You start growing anxious about something in the future that may or may not happen. This thing starts to just roll around in your mind. You're starting to get anxious about this thing. And then what happens? Well, this begins to warp your entire personality. I mean, you can give in to the sin of complaining just like that when you're anxious. Just like that. You can give in to the sin of irritability just like that. It's another sin that is sprouting off the sin of anxiety. I mean, just think about how interpersonal sins can arise. If you're anxious, this thing is just rolling over and you, something at work. Somebody comes to you with a legitimate concern at work and they ask for your help and you can just so quickly sin against them interpersonally. You can be rude to them, harsh with them, critical to them. I mean, you can just sin so quickly with your speech. I mean, how quickly are you going to speak words that build up when you're anxious about something? So the sin of anxiety is going to give rise to so many other sins. This is why it is a significant sin. <clears throat> also, it will begin to blind you God's present blessings in your life. It will begin to blind you to God's present blessings in your life. This is from another pastor, but he said, we may be surrounded by a multitude of the expressions of God's tender mercies, and yet if we are anxious, we are absolutely blinded to these tender mercies. And this has moved me thinking about this. We, we could be just surrounded by God's tender mercies, but if you are anxious, you will not see God's tender mercies in your life so here's an imaginary scenario. I would say there's a Christian man who's married to a godly woman. They have two, two kids. He's got a job that provides for him and his family. They're part of a wonderful local church, gospel-centered church. But he's at work, and there's something at work that begins to make him anxious. Maybe it's a project. Maybe it's he's afraid he's going to lose his job or something. But all of a sudden, the sin of anxiety has got a hold of him. Now, he's going to be susceptible to other sins, but the sin of anxiety is rolling around in him. It's just got him, uh, got him, got him in, the, in the claws of anxiety. And then when he comes home and his children are there and they're laughing and wanting to play, will he be as ready to engage in that? Will he even be, see the goodness of God in his children? No, he's, he's thinking about this. Other, he wants to be alone. He wants to brood on this thing. He comes to his, this wonderful dinner, but he's not even really thankful for this meal because he's thinking about this thing that's got him anxious. He doesn't see the gift of his wife. They go to some community event at church and he just doesn't see it. He's not genuinely grateful for this time with other believers. You see how anxiety will begin to blind us to God's present blessings. Jim Elliott, the missionary, he writes this in his journals at the beginning of his time in Ecuador, and you will hear a man who is not anxious, but you will hear a man who sees God's tender mercies. He says this, I wonder sometimes if it is right to be so happy. Day follows day in an easy succession of wonders and joys, simple, good things like food, well-prepared, or play with the children. 
or conversation with Pete, Pete Fleming, one of the other missionaries, I'm sure he's talking about spiritual conversations, or supply of money for rent and board within hours of its time to be paid. And I love this line. He says, grace upon grace in the outside sphere of living. Grace upon grace in the outside sphere of living. You could have grace upon grace in the outside sphere of living, but if you are anxious, you will not see those graces, those mercies. You'll be blind to them. And you see, we want to see. We want to see God's goodness. We want to see his tender mercies. So we do not want to be anxious because we want to be able to see God's mercy. But here's what happens. When we are anxious, it will dry up praise. Anxiety and praise cannot coexist in the soul. Anxiety and thanksgiving cannot coexist in the soul. We will be ungrateful and we will not be filled with praise. We want to be filled with thanksgiving and praise. So the sin of anxiety will will blind us to God's present blessings. I'll just sum it up with one pastor paraphrasing him, but he said something like this. Anxiety can cripple your faith. It can harm your usefulness and it can wreck your Christian testimony. It is a powerful force. It is not a trivial sin. It is a significant sin. It creates havoc in your heart and the hearts of those who are watching your life. So point number one is the significant sin of anxiety. Point number two, point number two, no reason to worry. No reason to worry. Let's read verses 31 to 33. Matthew 6, verse 31. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. One pastor says this. He says, There is no circumstance or condition in this life which should lead a Christian to worry. None. There's no circumstance that should lead a genuine believer to worry. How, how can he say that? How is that even true? There's no circumstance that we should worry about. Well, look at our text. Verse 31 again. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? That therefore is key at the beginning of verse 31. Therefore. So Jesus has made a, an argument preceding this, a logical argument. Now he's coming to the conclusion of this logical argument. We should be gripped by this argument that he's made. And now in light of that argument, here's the conclusion we shouldn't be anxious. Well, what, what's the argument? Well, part of it is, this is some of that Mark has looked at a few weeks ago, but verse 26. I love this. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? I think Mark said a couple weeks ago, he said, every time we see a bird eating, we should think God is feeding that bird. I love that. Every time we see a bird eating, we should think God, God is feeding that bird. God uses means. He's feeding that bird every single time. That bird has a meal. God is caring for that bird. And the, here's the thing. We're, not, we're more valuable than the birds. We are infinitely more valuable than birds. Of course, he's going to provide for us. Of course, he's going to care for us. He's going to give us everything we need to fulfill his purposes. Therefore, there's no reason at all for us to be anxious or worried. Alistair Begg quotes this little poem in, in one of his talks, or a talk he gave on anxiety. I've quoted this before. It's very good. The two birds talking to each other said the robin to the sparrow, I should really like to know why these anxious human beings rush about and worry so. Said the sparrow to the robin, Friend, I think that it must be that they have no heavenly father such as cares for you and me. You see, if we are running around worried, we're, we're, we're showing that we, we're living as if we do not have a heavenly father who cares for us. But the truth of the matter is we do. We have a heavenly father who cares for us. There's no reason at all for us to be worried. So we need to remember. We need to remember who we are. As believers, as Christians, we have a heavenly father who, who cares for us. If you are a Christian, you are a child of the living God. You have been purchased by the blood of Jesus. He has lavished heaven's riches upon you. You are, you're an heir of God and a co-heir with Christ. We've been adopted into God's family. We have this a wonderful, loving, heavenly father. There's no reason at all for us to be anxious. If God has created us and has redeemed us through the work of Christ, are we to suppose that he will fail to care for us? Of course not. He will take care of us. 
Sinclair Ferguson writes this. He said, we live in days of great anxiety and uncertainty. The very foundations of life sometimes seem to be on the verge of collapse. No wonder we are anxious. But why should we be when God who rules all things has become our Father? It is not rational or reasonable to be anxious when He has promised to supply all our needs. And then verse 32 says, For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. He knows. He knows. It doesn't say your heavenly Father knows that you don't really need these mundane things. No, on the contrary, Jesus says our heavenly Father knows that we need them all. Our heavenly Father knows our needs before we even ask Him. He knows what we need better than we know. He provides for us fully and graciously. Again, He's going to give us everything we need to accomplish His purposes. There is no reason for us to worry. Again, to quote Ferguson, he says, Anxiety can never be cured by getting more of what we have already. Anxiety can be cured only by the assurance that all our needs will be met by our Heavenly Father. So there's no reason to worry. Point number three is in the form of a question. Point number three is, what are you seeking? What are you seeking? Let me read verses 32 and 33 again of Matthew 6. Verse 32, For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your Heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So the question is, what are you seeking? Gentiles or unbelievers are going to seek after, pursue the things of this earth, but the genuine believer is going to seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. Really, that's, that's the two categories. Everyone is either consumed with the things of this earth, seeking after material things, or we're seeking first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. That's the two that split down these two categories. So here's some questions to think about this question, the big question, what are you seeking? Here's some more questions. Think about your life objectively. Where do you spend most of your time? What consumes your thoughts? I mean, where do we go when our mind is free? Is it always secular material things? Are we always going to material things? Are we going to eternal things, spiritual things? Where do you put your energy and resources? The daily pattern of your life says a lot about what matters to you, what you hope for, what you put your trust in, and what you truly Love. The, the story was told in one of the resources I read about these two different men. They'd gone into business together. Uh, one of them left the business, became a Christian, was married, had children, lived a very godly life. He gets to the end of his life, and uh, he, he's dying, but he's dying with joy. He's dying with peace. He knows he's going to heaven. He's going to hear Jesus say, well done, good and faithful servant. He's dying with joy and peace. His former partner uh, stayed in the business, made apparently millions of dollars, but never came to faith in Christ. He too was dying at the same time as his former partner. So you have this Christian and non-Christian dying. This, this man who was a Christian has a daughter. I assume she was a Christian. And she went to go see this un- non-Christian former partner of her dad's. I'm assuming to share the gospel with him. And she goes and begins to talk with him. And in a moment of honesty, th- this man, this non-Christian millionaire, says to the daughter of the Christian man, he said this, you may wonder why I cannot be as happy and quiet as your father. But just think of the difference between us he is going to his treasure, and I, I must leave mine. I mean, this is a moment of honesty. He's saying, I have lived for the things of the earth. I am leaving behind all my treasure. I cannot die with peace and joy and comfort like your father. Now, I would, I would hope that this, this, this woman, I'm assuming she was a Christian, I hope that she would have said to him, thank you for sharing, being open. Yes, that's true. You're going to leave everything that you've ever lived for, but there, there is more to the story. You're going to have to stand before God. You're going to have to give an account of your life before God, and you are still in your sins. Therefore, you need Christ, you need the good news of the gospel. You need to repent and believe and trust in the finished work of Jesus. Then you can die with peace and joy like my father. I hope she would have pushed him there. But again, Gentiles, the secular world, are seeking, consumed by material things. 
bound, absolutely bound by the horizons of earth. Everything is crammed into the visible. That's all they're fixated on. Therefore, that creates anxiety and worry about these visible things. And this is what I would say. I would just say, if you are consumed, absolutely consumed by the things of the earth, always thinking about the things of this earth, never as spiritual things, I would just say it's very likely you're not a believer. It's very likely you're not a Christian. I would just say, as Mark has often said, if you're not a Christian, we're thrilled. We love the fact that you're here and hope you keep coming back week after week. But here's the thing. Mark said this too a few weeks ago. If you're not a Christian, you do have something to be genuinely worried about. You have something to be genuinely anxious about. And what's that? Well, it's appointed unto man, wants to die, and then the judgment. I mean, everybody from the youngest child in this room to the oldest person in this room, all of us, all of us will have to stand before God one day. This is, it makes life a weighty thing, the most weighty thing conceivable. We're going to have to give an account of our lives before God. And if you're not a Christian, then you're going to stand before God in your own righteousness versus the believer stands before him covered in the righteousness of Jesus, and everyone's going to hear Jesus say, well done, good and faithful servant, or you hear him say, depart from me, for I never knew you. I mean, eternal condemnation, this makes it so weighty. And so, But I would say, if you're not a Christian, I would say the good news of the gospel, the greatest news that you could ever hear, and just thinking about the gospel again this week, is just moving afresh. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. I mean, just absolutely, you just think through how amazing is that Christ would be born in a stable in a feeding trough as a helpless child. I mean, absolutely amazing. And he would go all the way down to the cross, becoming sin on the cross. I mean, absolutely staggering. All those who turn and trust in his finished work can be forgiven. He died, he, he rose, and he ascended, and he's going to come again. But if you turn and you trust him, you can be covered by his perfect righteousness. He lived a perfect life. He never once gave into sinful anxiety his entire life, fully trusted his father. And that perfect life of righteousness can be yours if you turn and repent and believe the gospel. You can be covered in the righteousness of Jesus. So that's the unbeliever is consumed with the things of this earth. Well, what about genuine believers? How do they live? Well, verse 33 says, But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Jesus' disciples must live qualitatively different lives from those who have no trust in God's fatherly care and no fundamental goals beyond material things. When you come, become a believer, when you become born again, you have this overriding concern for the things of God. The man who knows himself to be a child of God and an heir of eternity has a very different view of things in this life and world. We know this is not our home. This is all temporary. We're living for, in light of another world to come. So let's take this, this phrase, seek first for just a second. Seek first is in the present imperative, which means this is not a one-time thing. This is something we're going to do continually, consistently. Seek first is in the present imperative. And take that word seek. It carries the meaning of seeking earnestly, seeking intensely. We're, we're living for this. And Jesus enforces this by adding the word first, seek first, seek first, meaning generally, principally, above everything else in your life, give this absolute priority. This is the dominating concern of your life is to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. You must bring yourself to that position in mind and heart and desires. You must take absolute priority over everything else is to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. I love sort of these, these verses that are, that are sort of big picture verses that give me sort of, if I'm ever in doubt how I am to live as a Christian, I love, as a new Christian, I love Ecclesiastes 12, 13, the end of the matter, all has been heard, fear God and keep his commandments. I think it's the whole duty of man. I love that verse as a new Christian. I love 1 Corinthians 10, 31, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. If I'm ever in doubt how to live, 1 Corinthians 10, 31, I am to live for the glory of God at work with my son. I mean, this is how I'm to use my free time to the glory of God. Another great verse. Marching orders. How am I to live? I am to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. This is what I am to be about. So what does it look like to seek first the kingdom of God? I'll quote various people on this. One pastor said it simply means to make the focus of your life on spiritual matters. Isn't this exactly what the Apostle Paul said to the Colossians? Set your minds on things above and not on things 
on the earth. So we set our minds on things above, on spiritual things. We make the eating and drinking of things eternal, our occupation. We set our hearts on heaven's riches. The kingdom of God is that which spiritual is central. The kingdom of God is where God is central. So spiritual things, eternal things. We set our mind on God, the things of God. Another uh, commentator said to seek the kingdom is to seek the king. So we should be seeking to know the Lord better. The Christian is meant to be seeking the face of the Lord daily, constantly. He takes and makes time to do so. I mean, one of the reasons I love being around new Christians is they have this desire to spend time with God and commune with God that you can't keep them away from the Bible. This is how we should be seeking the king. We want to spend time with the Lord. To seek the kingdom is to desire that God be known and glorified as king throughout the earth. We want to see the kingdom of God spreading. We want to, it's like, hallowed be your name. We want to see people come to revere and trust and treasure God. And we want to see people come to saving faith. We want to see the gospel spread. We want to see the kingdom of God spreading to seek the kingdom of God. What about this phrase, and his righteousness? And his righteousness. This means holiness, the life of righteousness. You're not only to seek the kingdom of God in the sense that you set your affections on things above, you must also positively seek holiness and righteousness. We want to make Christ-likeness our pursuit. Make Christ-likeness our pursuit. Can we truly say that? This is, this is an overarching desire of my life. I want to seek after Christ-likeness. I want to be more and more conformed to the image of Jesus. I want to be more and more Christ-like in every area of my life, in the way I use my words, in the way I use my time, in the way I use my money. I want to be more and more Christ-likeness. This should be our Pursuit to be growing in Christ's likeness. So that's the end of point three. What are you seeking? Point number four. Point number four, fighting the sin of anxiety. Fighting the sin of anxiety. This is going to be basically application. Seven things, seven ways that we can fight the sin of anxiety. I already gave number one the bonus point. Number one, the first one I'll remind you, is we want to have strong faith because strong faith is going to arm us against temptations to be anxious. So what do we do? We flood our life with things that will increase our faith in God, that's the first way that we fight anxiety. The second way that we fight anxiety is we want to live a day at a time. We want to live a day at a time. And let's read verse 34 together. Matthew 6, verse 34. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. So we want to live a day at a time. This doesn't mean we don't plan for the future. It doesn't mean we don't pray about the future or save for the future. That's not what it's saying. It's not what this point is saying. But it does mean we don't have sinful anxiety about the future. We do not go into the future and grab something that may happen and be anxious about it and bring it into today. We don't do that. We're, not, we're living a day at a time. We're not going into the future and growing anxious. We're not going to do that. Because today's grace is sufficient for today. If tomorrow brings new trouble or some kind of new trial, there's going to be new grace to meet. That's where we have to have faith and trust that God will bring grace. If tomorrow brings sorrow, it will bring strength for that sorrow. When tomorrow comes, he will provide all needed grace for whatever problems we have to face. Today is ours to glorify him. So again, we want to live a day at a time. We do not want to grow sinfully anxious about the future and bring that in today. That will crush us today. It will be more than we can bear today. One pastor said this, The Lord promises to give grace when we need it and not before. And when death comes and not before, he will give us dying grace. I'm just, I was thinking about this. If you think about what is the worst possible trial that you could go through this year? I mean, what would be the worst possible trial? The death of a child, death of a spouse, death of a loved one? Would it be a debilitating disease that you're diagnosed with? Would it be a cancer diagnosis for yourself or a malignant cancer diagnosis for yourself? What is the worst possible trial that you could imagine going through this year? 
Well, I would say if you get that diagnosis or you get that, whatever it is, the worst trial happens to you, I would say don't grow anxious because God will give grace to you and he will give you dying grace. If, if you came uh, to Liliana on October 13th last year, And if someone had told her, you have an advanced brain cancer and it's malignant and it's in your spine, you have six weeks left to live. And she did, she had exactly six weeks left to live. If somebody would have told her that, I think it would have been very hard for her not to have been anxious in that moment. Not that she couldn't have been, but I think it would have been very hard not to have been anxious in that moment. But here's the thing, if you, if you went to the hospital and you saw her, you know God gave her dying grace. He did. If you went to hospice and you saw her, God gave her dying grace. She was not fearful. She was not anxious. She was ready. She was excited to be with her Savior. So if you get the worst possible diagnosis, we do not grow anxious. We live a day at a time because God will give grace. When the trial comes, it's Corey Ten Boom when she gets on the train. Fearful to be a martyr, and she's asking her dad, and she said, when do I give you the ticket when we go to Holland? When I get on the train. If God calls you to whatever trial, he is going to give you sufficient grace. He'll give you even dying grace. So we want to trust him. We want to live a day at a time. The third way we fight the sin of anxiety is we want to just simply, this is a simple way, quick way, we want to unmask the sin of anxiety. We want to unmask the sin of anxiety and worry in the moment. which We can do this on all kinds of sins. Unmask it. Just think, if I give into this, I'm going to dishonor God. I'm not, I'm not going to believe God's word sufficiently. I'm going to dishonor God if I give into this. If I give into this, it's going to make me a sitting duck to so many other sins could come, come from me. This is going to blind me to God's present blessings. I don't want to be blinded to God's present blessings. It's going to blind me to God's tender mercies. I don't want, to be, I don't want praise to dry up in my soul. This is going to cripple my present usefulness. People talked about how you, you can have this divided heart. You can't operate fully, functionally, in the present, we're, we're to do all that we are to the glory of God. We're to work heartily unto the Lord. Well, how can you do that if you're anxious about the future? It's just going to inhibit your usefulness. It's going to be a waste of time and energy. And this thing could snowball. I mean, anxiety can snowball in your head. And all of a sudden, you're worried about something that's totally imaginary. And it's just crippling you in the present. So you want to unmask it, if we can, in the present. Number four, number four, we want to fight the sin of anxiety with specific verses in the Bible. We want to fight the sin of anxiety with specific verses in the Bible, and I, I mentioned this when Mark interviewed me several weeks ago, but October 14th when we went to the hospital, and I was there almost 12 hours, and all the, the events of the day, the, the, the tumor revealed, the hydrocephalus, and she could go into a coma. I mean, I was thinking that because he said you can go into a coma, and then she's going to have to have an MRI, she's going to have to have a surgery, brain surgery, and just all the events of the day, she has the brain surgery, and then you finally get up there to the room, it's late at night, and you leave, almost 12 hours of the hospital, all the events of that day, and all the tears you shed and the prayers you make, and you go home, I went home, by myself, it is quiet, and I just, I lied, I was lying down on my, on my bed, and just tears were literally just streaming down my face, I mean, just streaming, I've never had anything like it, just streaming down my face. Psalm 6, David, every night I flood my bed with, my, with tears, just streaming down my face, and the what if questions, as I said, told Martin, what if all this stuff happens, and then you're thinking, what if God takes her, and then what does, what does that mean? You're just, you're just, mind is just racing down where it shouldn't be racing, and then I just realized, whoa, the sin of anxiety is crouching at my door, it is about to devour me, it's about to take over. Like, this is a sin issue. This is real sin. I've got to fight it with specific verses in the Bible. I grabbed my phone. I went straight to Matthew 6. And I just began reading probably our text. I don't remember exactly, but I remember 
I mean, there it is. Do not be anxious. Do not be anxious. Do not be anxious. You come. Like, God cares for you. He's a fatherly care. And I came to verse 34. Again and again and again, I would come back. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow. For tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. You take out the sword of the Spirit and you make war on that sin. Put it to death by the Spirit. You fight against that sin of anxiety. And then you, you, you sleep. You rest. You trust Him and you, you go to sleep. So I would say fight the sin of anxiety with specific verses in the Bible. The fifth way, number five, the fifth way we fight the sin of anxiety is we want to learn to take things to God in prayer as they arise. We want to learn to take things to God in prayer as they arise. We need to get into the habit of turning to God whenever you feel worry approaching. Whenever we feel even the slightest worry, just, just get into the habit of turning to the Lord in prayer. Pray about it. Disciples should not suppress their anxiety. We should not give in to anxiety. Instead, Make prayer an avenue for your anxiety. I love that. Make prayer an avenue for your anxiety. Pour your complaints out for the Lord. Mark talks about pouring out that dirty cup of water. Just pour it out before God. Pour out your anxiety before the Lord. One pastor said, your reaction in trouble should be something like a conditioned reflex. I mentioned this in our community group last time, but a conditioned reflex. He said, we all know what a normal reflex is. You, you touch a hot stove and you yank your hand off. That's a, that's a normal reflex. But a conditioned reflex would be sort of like we've conditioned ourselves to see a red light. We press the brakes. At least most of us, I think, press the brakes. We see a red light. That's a conditioned reflex. Conditioned reflex. And he said, in the same way, we need reflexes that will turn us to the Lord at the first sign of trouble. We should train ourselves. Now, I would say not only for trouble things, I would say for praise, for thanksgiving, and the slightest mercy we see of God, turn to the Lord and give thanks to Him, praise Him, just get in the habit of going to the Lord in prayer. Somebody, again, to mention George Mueller, somebody came to him one day, and you know he's got all these responsibilities, caring for all these orphans. He's not asking anybody for money. And somebody said to George, George, how are you not anxious with all of the responsibilities that you have? And he said something, I'm not exactly sure the number, but he said something like, it was a big number, he said, I, I think it was I turned 60 things over to the Lord this morning before breakfast. I mean, he had a whole list of things. He just cast them all on the Lord. That's what we want to do. We want to get in the habit of turning to the Lord. The first sign of worry or anxiety, cast them on the Lord. John Piper says, God is not burdened down with your cares. He thrives on burden bearing. So let's cast our cares on the Lord. He, he cares for us. Number six, the sixth way we fight the sin of anxiety, we want to immerse ourselves in the Word of God. We want to immerse ourselves in the Word of God. Whatever holds our minds will mold your life. Whatever holds our mind is going to mold our life. We want to be transformed by the renewal of our mind. R.C. Sproul said we need to immerse ourselves in the Word of God. Nothing dispels fear and anxiety more quickly than the reinforcement in our understanding of the promises of God. I love that. Remember, we want to have strong faith to fight and faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And again, I would say George Mueller, one of the reasons why his faith was so strong certainly was he relied on God and saw these answered prayer. But another reason why is because he read his Bible cover to cover over 120 times in his life. And that caused his faith to grow exceedingly strong. And here's just a thing I would just throw in. I'm, I'm convicted on this, but Mark has talked about this, how we want to have a desire. We want to have a desire for the word of God, a delight in the word of God. If you have a desire and delight in the word of God, I mean, there's no way. You're not going to be held back from coming to the Word of God. You're, you're, you're going to immerse yourself in the Word of God. You will make time for that which we delight in. And there's a Bible commentator that my dad introduced me to, Dale Davis, and I just I can't get enough of this guy. Dale Davis, just great. Uh, for, I've just used him just for my own sort of uh, devotional time. Dale Davis, tremendous writer. And Dale Davis, reading him this week, he said something just absolutely convicting. I'm paraphrasing him, but this is what he said. Many professing Christians know more about Britney Spears than the book of Ezekiel. I mean, that is absolutely a stinging critique. Many Christians know more about Britney Spears. Name, the, name the, the celebrity. Many Christians know more about celebrities than they know about the book of Ezekiel. He said many professing Christians in the area where he lives, which is in the South, know more about the Southeastern Conference 
than the book of Psalms. You could say many Christians in Athens know more about the Georgia Bulldogs than the book of 1 Samuel. I mean, this is absolutely stinging critiques, and we want to have a delight, desire, delight in the Word of God, and we will immerse ourselves in the Word of God. Lastly, number seven, seventh way, we fight the sin of anxiety. We want to remember the gospel. We want to remember the gospel. Jerry Bridges, who his first book was The Pursuit of Holiness, and he wrote that book, I think, in the 1970s, and he was hoping it would sell a few hundred copies. Last I checked, it has sold over 1.5 million copies, but that book started selling like crazy. His name starts getting known. He starts getting invited to speak at different conferences, different churches, and uh, he got invited to speak, I think, in Alabama somewhere. He's in Colorado with the Navigators, and uh, there was going to be bad weather, and so he's going to have to change his flight, and Jerry Bridges would go grow very nervous, very anxious about flying and changing his flight. So he went to the airport early and he's trying to make, get his flight changed and he's growing very anxious because there's a storm coming in. He's not sure if he's going to make it to, to the conference in time. He said he was going back to the ticket counter over and over and over again. He said he was making himself an absolute pest to the lady at the ticket counter. Finally, he's able to get his ticket changed. He flies into Atlanta and he's going to drive over to Alabama, but he stays the night in, Alabama, I mean, in Georgia. He went to his hotel room and he's sitting in his hotel room and all of a sudden his conscience is just, just screaming at him all the sin of the day, his anxiety that day, uh, his making himself a past interpersonal sin. He's just feeling so convicted. He's saying to himself, how am I going to go and speak on the pursuit of holiness? How can I do this? I mean, just, after all this sin, how am I going to get up and talk about the pursuit of holiness? So he said he got out his Bible. I'm sure he prayed and asked God for forgiveness. He began to read the book of Colossians. Colossians 1, he read, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption. The forgiveness of sins. In chapter 2, he read these words, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with his legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He said the gospel just washed over him afresh, and he was able to go and speak on the pursuit of holiness. So we need to remember the gospel. I mean, you may feel some conviction today. You may feel beaten down about your sin of anxiety or that sin has led to other sins or it's blinded you to God's present blessings. You feel that? Well, we need to remember the gospel. We need to remember the forgiveness we have in Christ to be strengthened, to be washed by the gospel. But I think we also need to remember the gospel because the gospel will motivate us to go out and to live a life fighting against the sin of anxiety, live a life fully trusting in our heavenly Father. So anxiety is a significant sin. And I hope we've seen that. It's not a trivial sin, significant sin in our life. It comes from lack of faith or little faith. We want to have strong faith to flood our life with things that will increase our faith in God. We want to take God at his word, believe what he says. We want to be satisfied in God. There is no reason for us to worry. Just look at the birds of the air. Every time we see them eating, God is feeding them. God, we're infinitely more valuable than birds. We have a heavenly father who cares for us. What are we seeking? Are we consumed with the things of this earth? Are we seeking first kingdom of God and his righteousness, eternal things. And we want to fight the sin of anxiety. We want to strengthen our faith, flood our life with things that will strengthen our faith. Let's live a day at a time. Don't go sinfully anxious about the future. Trust that he'll give grace. We want to unmask that sin. Fight the sin with specific verses in the Bible. We want to learn to take things to God in prayer as they arrive. And as they arise, and we want to immerse ourselves in the word of God and we want to remember the gospel. Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, this is a significant sin, the sin of anxiety, but again, I'm thankful for your word, thankful for Jesus' clear teaching. I'm thankful that he repeats himself again and again uh, to at least in part warn us about this significant sin. I pray that we would not ever treat the sin of anxiety lightly. I pray that we would fight against it. I pray that we'd use some of what we've talked about today in our lives. Help us by your spirit to to, uh, implement these things.
in our life. Father, we, we want to see your tender mercies, your goodness in our life. We do not want to be blinded to those. Uh, Father, help us. Help us to, to race to you. At the first sign of worry or anxiety, I pray we'd race to you and just pour out our hearts before you. I pray that we really would have a delight in your word. And I pray we would live day by day just trusting that if you call us to go through some unimaginable trial, you're going to give us grace. And even if it's cancer or malignant cancer, you're going to give us dying grace. So help us, Father, to trust you more fully with our lives. And I pray even now as we sing that you'd be honored by our worship. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.